Hello and welcome to my Dilorama's Top Picks. I'm Abla Kandela, film programmer, journalist and researcher with my co-host Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic. As usual in Top Picks, we discuss marginalisation, resistance and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery and independent films and series. Now in its 11th year, My Die champions independent film and its use as a platform for underrepresented and oft ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at My Dialorama, where you can also tweet us, leave us comments and uh, just post random suggestions, anything you'd like us to talk about. And if you like what we do, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So the link is mydie.link slash Apple or Spotify at mydie.link slash Spotify. And you can support us with either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link slash donate which helps us cover production costs. And you can subscribe to our newsletter at mydie.link slash subscribe. So before we speak about our main focus this evening, which is... It's little fires everywhere. Little fires everywhere. Thank you very much. I uh, wanted to talk about very quickly a documentary that I watched on the BBC called A Killing in Tiger Bay. Have you heard of it? No. That wasn't the documentary I sent you, was it? No, no, okay. but I would I would recommend it. So A Killing in Tiger Bay is a documentary that goes over the murder of Lynette White, who was a 20-year-old uh, woman and uh, worked as a prostitute in 1988. And she was found brutally murdered in Butte Town in Cardiff, in Butte Town. It's near the docks in Cardiff and it's got a majority uh, black population and it's quite poor. And the documentary is very specifically about the miscarriage of justice around the five men that were accused of her murder who were, by all accounts, completely innocent and the way they were framed and the way the police went quite far in intimidating witnesses into giving false statements to incriminate those men. So they, it started off as five men, one of which was Lynette's boyfriend and um, two cousins and a couple of others who were well known by the police, but for misdemeanors. So a little bit of uh, drug dealing, some kind of very minor theft, very, very small, small time crime. Um, and three of them in the end were charged with the crime and sentenced to life in prison. Now, I, you know, spoiler alert for people who don't actually know the story, but thankfully in the end they were exonerated because the killer was actually apprehended. And it turns out it was one of her uh, clients, I guess. The most shocking thing, I mean, there's so many shocking things about it. For example, there's, a, there's an actual um, photo, um, what do you call it? Photo fit? Is that what it's called? You mean a photo? No, lineup? you know. Um, I just know a portrait. Okay, what when you, when you draw the face? You know, you like the police comes up with a face ah, for, yes. the, for the person they're looking yeah. for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's it called? A photo yes. fit. I thought it was a draw. No, it's not. No, isn't it a police drawing or something or police sketch? Sketch artist. Thank you. So, there was a police sketch of the man they suspected of killing her, which was doing the rounds, and it was nothing. Uh, you know by miles nothing like any of the men that were apprehended 
also from what I can gather in the documentary, the police portrait was of a white man and all of them were black. Obviously, the most shocking aspect is that they were not only innocent, they all had alibis and quite solid alibis. One of one of them was working on a boat and his colleagues had testified that he was working on that boat that night and that counted for nothing. There was nothing linking them, linking them to the scene of the crime. There was no uh, DNA. There was uh, really no motive either. And the reason the jury ended up finding them guilty. So two reasons. One was the intervention of two or three witnesses, I think. Two of them were uh, Lynette White's friends who were quite vulnerable young women. And it turns out subsequently they were intimidated by the police and they were kind of coerced into signing these these confessions, which were blatantly not true. And the second thing, which was the most damning, it was the interrogation of Lynette's boyfriend, Stephen Miller. They interrogate him for days on end, for hours on end, and basically break him down to the point where he just ends up telling them what they want to hear. And he tells them, that he was uh, he was involved and that two others were involved. And they keep telling him that he was, they keep reinforcing this idea that he was on drugs so he couldn't have been aware of what was going on, that he couldn't recount accurately what was happening at the time. So they end up making him doubt himself so much that he just gives up, gives this completely fake confession. So all in all, it was a really, really shocking documentary. I mean, not, not not surprising, but still shocking because their lives were ruined. So the two who were acquitted initially and then the three others who ended up leaving prison after like four years, I think, it still followed them around. That was that. It destroyed their lives. It destroyed their, their confidence. It destroyed their career prospects, anything, any future that they might have had. One thing, though, that I just was thinking of, I felt uneasy about was the fact that they, a few of them were referred to, especially Stephen, her boyfriend, as having low IQ and that having been part of why it was so easy to incriminate them. And uh, and it's been, it's been said by people who are defending them, who are saying, well, they were vulnerable. Yes, they were vulnerable, but they were vulnerable people with low IQ who the police took advantage of. I, I struggle with it's hard to understand what they mean by that. I already have an issue with the concept of IQ and how in a vacuum that's a real thing and and it's independent of your circumstances growing up, which I think are more responsible for how you respond to circumstances like these. So for me, Stephen Miller was actually a perfectly rational man no, I agree. It's the kind of tactics they use and you wonder, and I haven't seen the documentary, so I'll have to check that out. You do wonder though, is it a way to talk about something without talking about something, right? So instead of talking about race, we'll talk about yeah. IQ because I also have similar, if I think I know where you're going with it in terms of IQ, I have so many issues with that. And I had an issue with it from an early age because we in California, we in California, there is tracking, which you in the UK, what do you call it? You call it streaming where you have high track, low track, medium track, that kind of thing for students. No, uh, no. to go to college. Oh, is, is, you, is it the same as first yeah. tracking? You skip some sk- what steps. Is that? No, <laughs> no. I think it's called streaming here, but nevertheless, I was in the 
quote unquote, gifted and talented program. And even at eight years old, I questioned it. It didn't seem right to me then. I didn't have the science, but I had like, this can't be right. Mm -hmm. No one I know is in these classes and I've been here for a few months and no one seems smarter. So what's really going on here? And everyone else around me bought into that. Adults I know now still buy into that. This idea that my child is smarter. And that's my whole thing. But what are you, because we can all agree that we're taking these tests and we're getting these scores, but what are you measuring? Yeah, that's it. Who decides that to be able to solve a math problem in a particular way makes you more likely to be able to perform math in the future because this is a very specific pedagogy. So who's to say, well, I think, and that's the thing. It's it's like, if you were taught this subject in another way that wasn't culturally appropriate, then you also wouldn't perform well on that. So what are we really measuring here? And it is just a way to say how close to the white elite are you? (laughs) How, How much do you think like we think in a way that is valuable and it's usually valuable in a way we are talking about engineering? to solve we want you to solve problems a specific way but it's like but there's lots of ways to solve problems and let me tell you i work i don't even want to go there but let's just say i worked with an engineer and she was just so she thinks thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread and it's like that is one way to solve a problem but it's not the only way and it's not the best way but you can't tell her that she's always trying to bring something back to engineering i can't tell i spent a whole meeting going over this way that engineers solve problems it's like who asked you and no, I'm exactly. not quite it makes sure. Me very uncomfortable about the impact of that sort of assessment. When it's out of context, like everything makes sense in its context, but you can't tell me that you can now use engineering to solve problems yeah. in every single context. You can't, which isn't to say you don't want to see how it can be applied, but let's not just go for like this is the only way to do something because it's not. So, yes, so I agree. <laughs> but I'm glad because. So I discussed it with Chris and he said, well, I think they, they, they're implying that he had a very kind of uh, a, a much younger reading and writing age for his age. I thought, but that's, I mean, I don't see the link. And also, I don't know if that's um, intrinsic in him as a person. That's maybe that's just the fact, because of the fact that he just didn't go to school very much. And he was out sure and saying, you know, it's but not. It, it, but that's the thing, even with intelligence tests yeah they will tell you your intelligence can change so i think there is a miss i'm not saying you were doing this but i'm thinking of other conversations i've had where there's a misunderstanding about what intelligence tests are and in fact there was there's a famous and i want to say he's an economist who talks about this right that before you go through the education system you think in a different way and this shows up as kindergartners be being extremely intelligent but it's not it's just the way they think and the way they link things i think it's systems thinking is what they do i can't remember exactly now but it goes back to that it's like all it is is you're thinking in a particular way and they're saying that's not conducive to how we think you should think and so you're not intelligent which is why intelligence can change over time because you can be taught to think in a way that allows you to perform well on an intelligence test yeah and it's it's 
I think goes back to the kind of fundamental questions that people are start, starting to ask. Well, not starting to ask, but I think are becoming more popular, these questions about what is the purpose of education and how are we really training people to think? And it's like, well, that's what we really should be asking instead of taking for granted that people live and die by getting an A, which is what we have now. <laughs> somehow, and somehow you getting an A at Oxbridge makes you qualified for all these fantastic things. When in fact, you were going to do that anyway. And now this is just a justification for you being in that social position, which I think people know, but I'm of the opinion, if I was at the top, I certainly would be questioning it and trying to restructure society. I'd say it on paper, but it's like, don't you dare mess with my money or my job. (laughs) Uh, Well, all this to say, A Killing in Tiger Bay, I would definitely recommend it. It's on BBC iPlayer. I think it's it's still up there. And I think I'm really I'm just really glad to see that it's been made and that there there is some light shed on what happened then. And that at least a few of the poor men that were uh, victims of this miscarriage of justice are still alive to testify. So, yeah, I, I would recommend watching it. Do you want to move on straight to Little Fires Everywhere? Yes, because I, I watch lots of things. I am so interested to to hear what you have to say about this because it, it it provoked so many conflicting emotions in me. So oh, conflicting emotions! I'm here for all of that. Okay, well, let's give the synopsis first, and then you can give your take, and I can give my take, and we can go back and forth. So the synopsis is from IMBD, based on Celeste Ng's. 2017 bestseller little fires everywhere follows the intertwined fates of the picture-perfect richardson family elena and her husband bill and children lexi trip moody and izzy and the enigmatic mother mia warren and daughter pearl who upend their lives yeah so what did you make of it anything you might have specifically liked about it or take issue with Okay, I took issue with lots of things. <laughs> and I'm one. actually glad you suggested it because I've been meaning to watch it for some time. It was just one of those things I never wrote down that I wanted to watch it. So I'm glad it was a great suggestion there. And I think it really could have been called Let's Talk About Whiteness. So something that I've noticed in terms of how race is critiqued, it's always about less say what race is from the losing end of that. So it's always about questions of identity and experience. And the starting point of racialization is from the non-white position. But I think that that starting point really should be whiteness. And it is about how race is created and recreated. And I think when we don't analyze the white family as an institution, that is a trick of white supremacy. So I think we always have to start there. Like, what is the white family? How does it work as an institution? How does it reproduce itself? And I think that the film did do that, or the series, we should say, did do that. So I thought it put the white family front and center, focusing on motherhood specifically. And I think it was an interesting question because of my interest, as I said, and I think too much attention is given to how things change. And this series seems to look at how things stay the same. Mm -hmm. How did Elena become her mother? And I think that's what the story was really about. So it's about who can be white, who can become white. It's about the stories that are told, the lies, the secrets, the myths. So 
Elena's narrative of her mother is, oh, she worked to integrate Shaker Heights. And Elena then sees her, allow, you know, allowing her oldest daughter to date the black boy. She's integrating her family. She's pro-integration. And then you find out at yeah. the end, she absolutely is not, really. And Elena takes her role as a matriarch to reproduce the white family very seriously. And the series, I think, is about the threats to that. And when you see her position threatened, that's when she becomes fearful and violent. And we can see that with her ex-boyfriend who didn't want to have the family that she wanted. We see it with her daughter, Izzy. And we see it with Mia, who is the domestic worker who is not grateful to be there. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem for Elena, that she wants Mia to be grateful. She wants Mia to be her friend. And that really resonated with me because that has certainly been my experience in general with white people who I've worked with is they really, they demand that from you. And you see the responses when you don't play into that. And it becomes exactly that, like this total lashing out. Although they wouldn't see it as that, they'd see it as something you caused. And I think we contrast that with Mia though, who I think is also controlling and fearful about what is going to take away her social position. She likes to be the one and only in her daughter Pearl's life. Mm -hmm. And then what happens when that's challenged? When what she worked so hard to create in Pearl, she feels is disintegrating in front of her very eyes and what list she'll go to to stop that. Um, and it challenges a lot of myths, I think, about the mother-daughter relationship. Even though I, I thought they played that a bit too obvious, when you see the real values of Elena and when her daughter's accepted into Yale, what she really believes about hard work, law and order, deserving things, yeah. getting what you've deserved and worked for. And I think they, the series asks deeper questions about who can be a mother. And they contrast this with an undocumented mother, a black single mother. Although I think it was very telling that she created a character who was uh, the daughter of, I believe, West Indian immigrants, or we say Caribbean. No, I, I, I keep forgetting which term to use, as opposed to, you know, a black person like me who's in it deep because <laughs> in it deep because you're from slaves, which right, to me could yeah. kind of explain how she had this wealthy black childless family who wanted to have a surrogate in the eighties. I thought, yeah, a black person definitely didn't write this. <laughs> um, because I also thought the way that Mia was written, Maya, gosh, Maya was written was that she did play the mammy to the Chinese mother. I thought, yeah, like she went way too above and beyond for some woman she didn't know all because it's, oh, you have to basically asking her to do something she herself didn't do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, why would she do that for this woman? That was just too unbelievable. Like, why would she do that? And I just felt like, you know, Ms. Ng should have just wrote the story about a Chinese mother versus trying to do that through a black character. I, I didn't appreciate that. But I, I didn't think that was about, I thought, I didn't think that was specifically about race. I thought that was more about her own guilt, feelings of guilt in terms of what had happened with the, with the surrogacy and her own uh, feelings towards her daughter, etc. It was. 
I'm talking about the lens she went to, though. That was extreme for someone you don't. So for, so for someone you don't yeah. know, you're going to give up your nest egg that you didn't do for your daughter who needed <laughs> like a home, a physical dwelling to live yeah. in. So you wouldn't do that for her, but you can do that for a stranger. And I'm going to add, I also didn't believe like on what planet does someone raise a child by themselves? in this day and age like that just would not be possible it wouldn't be possible for you to raise a child and do the kind of art that she was doing that kind of art takes so much time right and reflection and you that is a full-time job you can't be a single mom too and by single mom be be clear what i mean she wasn't a single mother as single mothers exist in the real world. Single mothers exist in the real world as having a, if you're raising the kind of child that Pearl was, okay? Yeah. That child required a whole network, quote unquote, village, as they like to say, of people providing mm-hmm. support and care. You are not doing that, raising a child in your car. That doesn't happen. So I wasn't sure why... <laughs> why or how like that was just so unrealistic to me and I spoke to my own mother about it my mom's like oh that's possible I said really what single mothers do you know who did anything close to that I'll take anything close I will take any single mother who didn't have a bunch of you know know, whether they acknowledge is another question because I've heard people spin these tales. I've, I spoke to someone I remember and she was telling me she really admired this single mother because she did it on her own. I said, did it on her own. Don't you watch her kids for her during half term? <laughs> Who did anything on their own? Let's stop. Stop. No. And I'm not saying you shouldn't get the help, but I'm saying that explains how we're able to live. It's like, you know, the the issue... <laughs> Gosh, I have so many issues. Something that came up for me, just as a, a side note to that, right? Like, what is the real issue, right, of what prevents people from having more kids than they want? Because they were talking, you know, today we were talking about, in a different conversation, about how people, you know, have fewer kids as you don't need to have kids. But I think that's only yeah. part of the story. I think the real story is, what the mode of production causes is for you to have to do things on your own that could be socialized. So why is it that, because the question I would have, and this goes for any parents, mom or dad in a couple or single parent, if you had the home, the housekeeping help, someone's going to do your laundry, help you cook. Someone's going to provide meals, daycare. How many kids would you have? And that is another question. If we socialized everything and the things that you now have to do this with the patchwork of friends and family and well-wishers, it was yeah. guaranteed to you because we as a society decide if you want to have 10 kids, you can. If you don't want to have any kids, you can. And we don't want anything to stop that. I think people would have a different number. That's I all I'm so saying. Too. Yeah. So I, so. In this parallel universe where we pretend this woman on her own is raising a kid. And my mom can give me an example. She's, well, I have to think about it. Yeah, I bet you will. Because that person doesn't exist. Even my own mom, after she got divorced, was very clear with me. That's why she moved back to the city. Because my dad was in the military, so he moved around. And that's why she moved back to where her family was. Because she had sisters and a brother and her you know her other brother wasn't living around he was in another state and her mother was there so she needed the help and 
now for some reason that story has changed to where we now live in a place <laughs> where single mothers raise these highly functioning, intelligent, dynamic kids in a car. And no, it that doesn't happen. And I just think that whole story too about her keeping the baby wasn't believable to me mm-hmm. either. Was it the fact that she kept the baby or the fact that she was on the run for keeping the baby? Well, you'd have to be on the run, right? Because well, you can't show back up where you were. But that's why I don't believe it because she seemed to be very in love with the art teacher, professor. I don't want to, you know, you know how people are with their titles. She was very <laughs> in love with the art professor. And I'm not, I just don't think, if anything, the death of her brother, because we know that's what death can do, right? It can either drive you away, drive you close. I just think that would have driven her more into her art and being with the professor as opposed to deciding I'm going to raise a baby. Now, I, I didn't buy it. Uh, that's not what struck me. I could believe that she bonded with the baby. I mean, it's growing inside her and fair enough. But no, I'm, I'm I mean, this is a bit of a sidestep here, but... um. I'm just wondering about the law in America, because I know that at least in the UK, still, the the biological the the the, the mother the the woman who is carrying the child is the one who um, she has the right to keep that child up until I think it's like a number of weeks after the birth. If she changes her mind about the surrogacy, she's allowed to do that. She is not um, falling foul of the law. But I don't know if it's the same in the US. That's why I was surprised that she'd run away. Because for me, she did she, she did something maybe that she was embarrassed about, that she didn't know how to confront the family about. But ultimately, it was her it was her. Well, right this was all do. under the table, don't forget. No, no, no. This was all under the table. So they didn't do things in the proper way, remember? Uh no. Okay, yeah, so none of this was done properly because had it been done properly, right, had they done things legally, I don't know what the law is, but they subverted all that. That's why she was asking for money because it, and they were paying her under the table so that she could do her tuition. So none of this was above board, which... Okay, well, surely then she's entitled to keep the baby then. They have no right to But the that baby. was the whole thing. She didn't want to share. Number one, she doesn't have to. Of share. course, she would. But she of didn't course have she to. Would run, have to share. She didn't have to run away. She, if she, she, she wanted she, the baby by herself, because don't forget, he is the biological father. Of course, she'd have to share the baby with them. Oh, that, she couldn't true. just that's raise it by so herself, and that's what she wanted, which is what makes her selfish. Because, and that was the problem, which she should have felt horrible about. Because if, and you know, she could, you know, let's just say she could, because I don't know the law, but because they did things under the board, I would suspect, like you, that they would have joint custody but don't forget they're also a wealthy couple and i'm sure in her mind she's like okay the way the world works is they will figure out a way to have the baby and alienate me from it but i want her to be all mine because i carried her and that was her attitude but i don't believe they would have done that for what is it 15 16 17 years i believe that they would have put up some sort of fight or tried to take her to court for about a year and then they would have moved on to another surrogate but, so that's why mm, I don't buy well, it that well, she well, has to be on the run for all her who, life. Who knows? But that's just it. She didn't want to risk it. So there was a lot of risk involved. And I think the legal system is all about who has the resources to put up a fight. So it's not about being correct. It's about what is going to be your legal representation. The fact is she wouldn't have had any legal representation being 
a student. <laughs> she didn't have anybody. So, and, and the yeah. art professor certainly didn't plan on her being a mother. She made that clear. Like, mm, don't forget, she's the best artist in the world. She's just, anyone can have a baby. She's doing bigger things. So she wouldn't have gotten, you know, the kind of support to, yeah, be a single mom <laughs> from her. Uh, so how would she have put up that fight? And I think she knew that reality. That it's just this way I can guarantee. But I do agree with, I don't think they would have been looking for her for all those years. So like you're saying, I think after a decade, she could have gone back home or or oh, settled yeah. down anywhere because she changed her name, first of all. So I think the moving around exactly. was for her art more so. But, but I did think it was weird. I agree with you too. Like, I don't think under an assumed name, how on earth and... Let's not forget this is the 80s and 90s. There was you people struggled to find people who <laughs> wanted to be found who moved <laughs> states. So if she moved to another state and lived under another name, how would they have found her? That would have been quite impossible. So I agree with you there. Exactly. I think she could have moved one place. So I think the moving around was a part of her art, even though the daughter made that claim when Pearl found out the truth and got so she's like, oh, this explains why we're moving around. They should have made it clear. Well, no, we moved around because yeah. I do that for my art, as you know. But but I do think also it fueled it. But that's what I'm saying. It's like M- Mia wasn't totally rational either. She was still living as a scared 19 year old, even though she was now yeah. in her 30s. But that's not how she was living. And I think that's what I was surprised about. I expected her to be. What was that thing we were saying about um, not being worthy, but being righteous? You know, this is a this is going to be a series about race. This is the black character. She's going to be righteous. She's going to be good. And so I found a lot of it at first not quite coherent. But actually, if you just accept that she's also just completely uh, flawed and quite selfish at some points, then then it I guess it can make sense. Nothing quite adds up. And I thought that's why they, there would be a massive twist at the end. I thought maybe like they're related in some ways or, you know, something. There's something where she's she's she has to take her revenge on Reese Witherspoon's character. I thought, honestly, I thought at one point that her brother had been killed by Elena. Um, and maybe that's why she's acting like Wait, whose brother was killed? So, um, Mia's. Uh, oh, you it was, it Mia was just Maya. a car accident. It was a car accident, but I was like, surely for her to behave like this, there must be a reason. She must seek revenge. So maybe it's because Elena's uh, is responsible for for killing her brother. <laughs> and I was putting myself in her shoes, as, as I told you. I said, if a family wants to pay me that much to do this or give me a cut price house, I am taking it and I'm smiling and nodding my way through. No, everyone else does it. Uh, <laughs> that's how we get through life. But I think she certainly, and that came up in one of the scenes, right, where she came to her house to tell her Pearl had an abortion. It's like, what yes. is it about me and and there was that element there i think elena was jealous that mia had the courage to like live the life that she couldn't do and there are parts of mia's life yeah. that i think did take courage to do to live as she did it also doesn't absolve her from being selfish and very yeah. self-absorbed um you know both things can be true because it's also true she loved her daughter exactly. it's also true that yeah. She, there's parts of that love that were toxic driven by her own possessiveness. And that's why she also struggled so much to allow her daughter to make her own choices. It's like 
mothers who, and that's what I think they both did. They both treated their children like possessions. They are mine. And Mia said that many times, you're mine. And they've treated their yeah. children as possessions as opposed to guardians and now transitioning to, I have to relate to my children as young adults, as opposed to my kids. Yeah, that's it. I like that about the series. I thought it was it was quite nuanced in that way. But I definitely had issues with how, and that's just it, because I didn't read the book. I'm not sure what parts were from the screenplay writer or from the writer Celeste Ng. I think it's important to think about the context of Shaker Heights and how race is constructed, which are you know, the things I don't agree with. So in an interview at Cle- in Cleveland.com, Celeste Ng is described as an alumna of both Howard and the University of Michigan, where she received an MFA in creative writing, a wife, a mother of one son, a child of two Chinese migrant professionals. The father worked at NASA, the mother, a chemistry professor and researcher. And she said, quote, my parents chose Shaker because it was relatively racially integrated and it had an excellent public school system. Two things that were extremely important to them, unquote. She goes on to say, quote, I loved growing up in Shaker and I didn't realize until after I left what an unusual place it is, how progressive the community is, how many opportunities we had in school, a planetarium, creative writing courses, the theater program. Growing up in Shaker made me conscious of race in the best way possible. This was part of SGORR, the student group on race relations. Oh, I'm sorry. She was part of that. I was Mm -hmm. part of S-G-O-R-R for three years in high school where we visited elementary school classrooms to talk about things like discrimination and stereotyping. Our teams met weekly to discuss the issues ourselves and hearing others' perspectives made me think deeply about how others perceive us versus how we perceive ourselves. So let's stop there. So if we think back, to the show we did on the obituary of Tunde Johnson. Yeah. They're talking about race. We have to say, what do you mean by race? And I think for this writer, Ms. Ng, which I think was reflected in the film, which is why it reminded me of the obituary of Tunde Johnson, is that there's a particular logic in where race is diversity, having a unique perspective or experience. It's not material conditions such as intergenerational poverty, mass incarceration, low-wage work, chronic underemployment. You get what I'm saying. These are the types of things that would keep you out of shakers so that you cannot go to the school and be part of the the student group on race relations. And I don't think they get that. That they're talking about race. And it's not a coincidence that the writer of both the obituary of Tunde Johnson and Celeste are both the children of migrants. And I think to be an an elite space, as that's not the same thing and it's equated as oh we're all non-white so we're all people of color so we're all diverse and to me this just feeds into that which i think is extremely problematic so let's go on so she says i remember feeling welcome in shaker although there weren't many asians there the fact that the community was very aware of race relations made it feel a relatively tolerant and open-minded place So I wouldn't say my experience as a Chinese American has been defined by discrimination or being excluded. 
With that said, though, not everywhere is as tolerant as Shaker, nor is Shaker a magic bubble. The sad truth is that with one exception, every example of racial discrimination in the novel, and this is the previous novel she wrote, not this one, mm-hmm. is something that's actually happened at some point to me, my family, or others I know personally. From the little girls who throw rocks at James's car to the woman who pulls her eyes into slits. I unfortunately didn't have to do a lot of research here. So this seems to me, this discussion of race as discrimination or race relations it means race as cultural pluralism like so we want a space for people to bring their whole selves we want diversity blah 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 and instead for me what i saw with these characters and i'm talking about mia and pearl the black characters Mm -hmm. who move there it is a completely different experience being black in these spaces so dave Chappelle has a joke and he says my parents did just well enough so that i could grow up poor around white people (laughs) Uh. and then he has a monologue which describes the experience which is i think what little fires everywhere missed and he says because he was talking about an experience he had talking with rappers right when nas and them talked about the projects i used to get jealous because it sounded fun Everybody in the projects was poor and that's fair. But if you were poor in Silver Spring, it felt like it was only happening to you. Yeah. And I think this was the case for Pearl and Mia. So the question that was asked, but I don't think answered in a way that I agree with, is what does it mean to live in an affluent suburb as a poor black person where I have no social connections, a family legacy, and I mean specific to this town, not country, although it could be applied to this country because Mia is the daughter of two migrants or political power. Then how do I go about getting it? And then a question I would ask as a black person, like who grew up in a predominantly white place is what is the black community when it's just you and some other non-white upperly mobile people with no accountability or connections to black institutions? Like, what does that really mean? What are the consequences? And in this way, she, I think, allowed Pearl to kind of navigate these spaces as though she wasn't black, which I didn't quite get. Like, there was no consequence to her being black other than... Well, there was in the in the maths class, for example, she wasn't allowed to join the level at which she could, she could feasibly uh, get in. Yes, but beyond that, I think it plays out in the much more everyday practice of who wants to be friends with you, who would you hang out? Yeah, with? Yeah, that's that's portrayed in this. I don't think it was because she. Well, one of the daughters uses her as a, for her own street cred. Or... Yeah, street cred, right? To make up with her, show her boyfriend she's not racist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just it didn't. And as we know, right in these white schools, there they still find ways to segregate you, which is where the streaming comes in, and and that's really the roots of. Well, sorry, we call it um, now of our tracking. That's how that whole process started. Because what do you do in a school where you're forced, when black children are forced to go there, then you create an upper track and a lower track. And we all know who goes to which. And that's how you keep segregation in an integrated school. Yeah, you see, that's completely alien to me. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you I've said never, that because I've never heard of that. This system. is part of the problem that I have. Actually, let me not say that. Let me not frame it in a negative way. But yes, I agree that that does not. Your education system operates differently in that way. But yes, in the U.S., that's how it works. And unfortunately, people don't understand that that's how that works. But that's absolutely how that works because it's all based in well, everyone takes the same test. So if you do the standardized testing, and you end up where you end up. Uh, so yeah, that's the way of doing that. And that was how that whole process of her getting moved classes played out because that in my own personal, personal life, the test scores were the way I was able to do it. That's how I always moved up is because on standardized tests I did well. And so I could move classes. However, That is in general, not how it's totally done. How it's really done is your parents come and complain and they say, move them. And then they move them. But you have to have the social capital to do that. Which Elena had. And that's, which, yeah, which is and that's the problem is that because Mia didn't have it, she didn't understand that's how it worked. Her solution was well i taught you to advocate for yourself you can advocate for yourself but no she was totally wrong that actually isn't how schools work which is why ellen understands how schools work which is why she went up there but Mia didn't have the cultural social capital to understand that yeah and she also for some reason seemed to think that her daughter would be able to do that i'm not sure why or how but that's the other problem it's like no your kids can't do that that's what your parents have to do because they have to have the pool to make it happen but I did like it, even though even though I'm critical. And even this whole thing too, you know, just to speak more about the framing of white motherhood, because Elena's issue, right, was around wishing she could have had an abortion, right? Yeah. And to me, that's an you know, another issue I have with. And I I feel like it's bizarre. Like the past few weeks I've been getting this discussion with different people. Like that's the issue I have with abortion being the issue. Is that as opposed to what? As opposed to the broader discussion of reproductive freedom. So right. it's that you should be able to have the family you want, irrespective of your income, right? We need to create a world where we're socializing all the barriers that keep people from having yeah. the children they want, which is what we don't want to do. And instead, we want to say it should be about abortion. But that's why I think in the US, I think that's a white woman's issue. Because black women aren't saying, in you know, in general, we're not talking about, you know, in general, it's not, they're not getting abortions for the same reason Elena would be getting an abortion. It's not no, a career exactly. move. It's to do with your circumstances. Yes, yeah. we do know there's the cases of rape and people who don't want to be mothers, but that's not generally no. why people so are they getting can't abortions. Afford, they can't afford to feed another kid. Or they don't have the emotional support, you know, whatever they're moving. Yeah. They're not in a stable relationship. All the, all the standard stuff. And... Those are all though rooted in the social inequality. So I just don't like it when we're not having that discussion as opposed to, oh, well, let's make just to make sure that you get an abortion. It's like, okay, well, I don't want them to have to make that choice unless they're, you know, they're having an abortion for those reasons where I don't want to be yes. a parent. Not I can't be a parent. That's a different thing. And then you're not able to talk about the bigger issue of childcare. Cause you know, black women have always worked. So childcare has never been an issue, but now it's an issue when white women are getting in the workforce. It's like, okay, well, no one cared when we were doing it, leaving our kids you to know. take care of yours. Well, it's an issue now. It's very topical. It was in the news this week. 
only because it's white women who have that problem that's what i mean like all these things are very racialized and so that's why i just get frustrated was like no if we're going to really talk about reproductive freedom we've got to bring in the issues of black women we've got to talk about the issues of men as well and for some reason they don't it's i don't know why this isn't a man's issue and it should be like men have opinions and we shouldn't invalidate that just well you don't care yeah yeah we know they can't so (laughs) that's not even a good point it's like how people have children and families whether or not that's with a woman and her partner or you know she has uncles and a father like there's still men in the family and i think we want that to be part of how we think about reproductive freedom. So I just have a, I just think I see that again and again how abortion is the issue and I just don't think it is. No, I mean that's that is a tiny symptom of a much larger problem and then I just think when we limit it to abortion then we don't get to talk about what's really important to black women. With that said though, in the terms of this film with Elena, it was all about that like her thinking my career got derailed because I had to keep these kids. Her mother told her very clearly, abortion yeah. ain't for you, which was also unrealistic to me because if anything, abortion is totally for affluent white yeah. women. So that was weird. But anyway, let's go with it. And Elena's mother said she can't do that. Um, I think she was speaking more as a Catholic than a rich white woman. I see. I thought it had to do with their status and standing in the community. For some reason, was I she remember Catholic? There's a, there was a religious element to it. Maybe I'm misremembering sure. it. I don't think don't, don't a hold me to that. Element. But yeah, but Eleanor was a total user. And I thought it was interesting too when she went to go see that boyfriend. Because uh, at first, and I, and I did like the way that that was done because it all looked very innocent from the start. Like, yeah, you do have to look good when you go see the ex. So it all looked very innocent. <laughs> huh. Right? Like, yeah, you better get it together, girl. Don't wear those Shaker Heights clothes. Get a new outfit from Saks. Get your hair done. Uh... <laughs> until we get the backstory of how she used him and then tried to make it seem like it was his fault it's like you called me (laughs) who does that but she does that never taking responsibility oh stop 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 (laughs) making excuses for (laughs) her of course we can understand she was totally overwhelmed yeah we we get that she was she was going through a lot i'm sure postpartum was only part of it it was lots of her thinking what have i sacrificed what have i done did i really want this so many things were going on for her i just think specifically instead of saying that like i don't know why i did this it was it became his fault that she was at his house so yeah that's it so that's the part that pissed me off not the fact that she did it and not the fact that she regretted it all that is completely realistic and understandable but it's all you know that and that's always how you draw which is why i thought that part was well done because that's how you always draw out characters to show their responses to the crisis because that's what tells you about who they are as people both in fiction and in real life yeah it was how she responded to that instead of saying okay i chose to be here and now that i'm thinking about it i really want my family so i'm gonna leave how dare you that's <laughs> That was her go-to. How dare you take advantage? Take advantage? You wanted it. What the? And she tried to do it again, right? Also, feeling a little out of control. I know instead of going to get some therapy or focusing on the daughter that I hate, (laughs) I'm going to go disrupt someone else's life about what he can do for me. So not And that's the thing. Not only did she ask for a favor, 
Now you also ask him to be a part of infidelity in a marriage. She's such a cow. She's the worst. Yeah, no, but I started off sympathizing with her character, to be honest, thinking, well, her heart's in the right place. And then I think what what made me uh, do a bit of a, of a 180 was, to be fair, wasn't so much her reaction towards Mia, which I could understand in the context of everything, was her reaction towards Bibi and towards the whole baby thing which I found really like intentionally spiteful. Well, that we haven't talked about that. So that's a really interesting one because I did empathize with Elena's friend. Of course you, you would because yeah. she's done nothing wrong here. Exactly. Um, she didn't. But it's a generally very unfair. And we come back to that, what you were saying about choices and about abortion. Yeah, she's having fertility problems. She goes through uh, down the adoption route, which is great. But it's the bigger issue is why it's come to that. And we come back to the fact that yeah. BB acted out of sheer desperation. So where do you draw the line? I found that really uncomfortable viewing and I thought that was really handled very well. And I thought it was awful that actually what, what, when it came down to it, it wasn't even the fact that whether or not she willingly gave up her baby or not. It was the fact that, um, as um, Joshua Jackson's character, uh, the husband, says, people like her just won't don't win. Um, yes. And I also thought, you know, back to Mia's situation, that, that's why I was just like, and she should have known that because that's the reason why she left. Because she knew that with the rich couple, there was no way, even if she was right. Because, yeah. of course, in this case, she was right because the adoption hadn't gone through yet. But I think it wasn't only because they were a rich couple, but even though the adoption hasn't technically gone through because I've, I, okay, of course, this is something I'm not an expert in. I've done no background research in. I just know of one family that went through something similar. And it's like, even though it hadn't gone through and the mother was contesting. They're just like, it doesn't matter because it's not, it won't affect the outcome. Like you're still going yeah. to get the adoption. And it, it almost wonder, makes you wonder, you know, was that lawyer just, I think in the book though, the lawyer was pro bono. I don't think he cost money, but I could be wrong about that. But it's like, what kind of lawyer would take that money knowing full well they wouldn't win that case? Like, was he just trying to make a political statement and take the money to do it with that court case to illustrate the problem with the system? Yeah, that's it. So then do you think that that was the right decision she did was just to kidnap her and go back to China? Uh, is it implied that she goes back to China? Well, where else would she have gone? Yeah, that, you see that? Because she was going to get deported. She was going to get deported. No, no, exactly. So, so I, I was hoping I she'd she get to back. China, but I wasn't sure that's what she'd planned oh, on doing. Oh, no, that's good. You know what? I just kind of assumed that's a good point. But I don't know that. You're right. Maybe maybe she skipped and went to another town. But that's the thing. It's so hard. If you're undocumented, you have to stay where you know people because how else are you just going to get someone to hire you and pay you under the table and then get an apartment? All that stuff costs money. Yeah, exactly. Know? No, realistically, her only way out is to try and get out of the country. Yeah, because a couple possible. thousand dollars you could yeah. get. And, and <laughs> at a baby like that. But then that's the question. How would she do it? Because you would need a passport for her. Yeah, that's a good question. Where would she have gone? Her own documents and some fake ones. But, but then that was also a high profile case. So how? Anyway, <laughs> maybe it's high profile in Shaker Heights. But if she went to uh, Minneapolis to fly, not Minneapolis, they're not in Minnesota, <laughs> where they're in Michigan. So she, she goes to Ann Arbor, Detroit to fly out. Nobody will be the wiser. That's also very true. So and that's the thing. That's why you're for me anyway. That's why I was rooting 
for the mom to get away only because it's like that's a risk you take when you get a foster child because it she wasn't always available for adoption even though they when she fostered they told her we can't find her mother we've looked for months do you want her as a track to adopt so it was kind of set up like that but that's why if that may not be the best route when you really want to adopt it might just be better and they have the money to do it so it makes you wonder why didn't they just adopt you know and not foster then adopt because Mm -hmm. then that's that's much riskier yeah that's true versus I've never known any foster parents, but to me that I just feel like that could be heartbreaking to have a child and think you're going to adopt them and then their biological parents take them back. Oh, that sounds very painful. But you know, the other thing that came up for me in this film was the thing around interracial friendships. And I'd be interested to know what you think about this, because I remember one of the lines where Mia was telling Pearl that she'll disappoint you. And I think I was, that was a PC way of saying things that my mother said to me about having white friends, which she now denies. (laughs) and i think though both this fictional mia and my mother it is a way you try to protect your children and i think if i had kids i would tell them the same thing because how do you brace them for that and you know it's coming you can set your watch to it that 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 they will potentially use you in that way yes use you in some way or you'll find out that they're looking for a pet Negro. But I think it's multifaceted. So I wouldn't limit it to that. Like I'm talking about it in the way my mother talked about it to me. But there's the other element that I think black parents do talk to their children about, but not all, is especially for the boys. Like you have to know very clearly that you're not white. And if you do the same things that these white kids do, you will see your punishment will be hugely disproportionate and there's nothing that I can do about it. No, but and I've heard I've heard that said a lot. Yeah. And again, that's not something that's not my experience. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not black, so. Um, well, it wasn't I've, mine. I've I heard... think also because I'm a black girl. I think black boys, and that's yeah. because you do different things to the black boy, uh, are framed in that way, and the way the black girls aren't. Although, I think we were as black girls well aware. I remember in high school, actually, I had a friend, and there was this other friend we had. Well, I'd say she's an acquaintance. Anyway, the story was that one of my black friends and this white acquaintance were in the store and then the white girl started shoplifting and she said nope nope i don't play like that because that's the thing no one will follow you number one and that's the thing the white girl never got caught but that's because she's white no one's following her but she's just like i can't play those games because if i'm even suspected it's going to be a whole different ball game for me so that was just common sense about (laughs) what it means to be black and how you're watched and how you're policed that of course the white girl didn't get and we all made a mental note we never go anywhere with this person yeah you see this is why on the whole i think it's quite a complex series and it brings up so many issues on so many levels that i hadn't really expected it to i thought it would be a much more superficial um angle so yeah no i i liked it i liked it on the whole and it kept my allegiances kept switching as well between mia and elena i keep calling her elena is it elena or elena I thought it was Elena, but now I can't remember. But the other thing, you know, just just to clarify, because I didn't really explain how I thought they made. uh, And this is so bad, actually, because I'm ashamed that I didn't write down the Chinese mother's name or the name of. Oh, was it? Bibi. The Chinese mother is Bibi and her daughter's um, Mylin. 
Okay, yes, yeah, so Bibi. Or Mirabelle, according I, to the I thought man. she, yeah, I thought she definitely was, they, they wrote her as playing a mammy to her because really it's like the mammy is self-sacrificing yeah. for this character and they never explained why she would do that. Like I would understand if they were friends, but they weren't friends. She was her co-worker. No, but it's to prove something to herself. I know it might be a bit far-fetched. It might be like... It was to me because of the self-sacrifice, because of what it required her to do to testify for her and what it required of her to get the money to pay for that lawyer. So it was those two things. Everything else, like I I thought would have been, you know, because you have to follow a bit of fantasy to get involved in any story. So I was fine with her, you know, checking to make sure that was, you know, figuring out a way to get into that party, figuring out a way to tell her where she lived, like all of that I could buy. But it was just those two things that I thought, mm, mammy. Yeah. And it was pretty messy as well. <laughs> Why are you letting this lady do that? Man, go show up at the birthday party. Man, she had to ruin the birthday party. <laughs> and I thought they were also a little harsh too about the, uh, Having the fortune cookies at the party. It's like, all right, don't expect this lady to know that fortune cookies aren't Chinese. They were having a little fun. And I thought, even though it was a good lawyer move. But but that's it. That's what I I say when I about the mum, the adoptive mother saying, well, she, you know, she means well. She's in that context doing her best, really. She's not, um, she's not portrayed as someone who's particularly problematic or or nasty or anything she's just reacting to the circumstances but the wider circumstances are unfair so that neither women neither woman should have been in that position really no but see that's just it it's like you feel sorry for her until like anybody else she leverages her resources to get what she wants that's it so ultimately she got her rich husband and his rich friends to get her baby yeah but she lost in the end. Dun, dun, dun. So I was actually wasn't ready for that plot twist. Yeah. I think that's it. Deep down, I couldn't help thinking they'll get her another baby, whereas BB's not going to get another baby. So. Well, I mean, what makes you think BB couldn't get another baby? She no, I mean, she like can't get, woman. yeah, but she can't get her. Do you know what I mean? She, that, that was her mm, child. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was the other lady's child, too. And that's, that's the other thing, too. I remember I was quite dramatic as a child. I lost my, uh, my hamster died. And everyone kept asking me, when am I going to get another hamster? And one day I snapped at my aunt. I was just like, well, if I had lost a child, would you be asking if I was going to have another baby? She said, all right, it's a hamster. So I'm going to need drama. you to take that bass out of your voice. I just asked you. All you had to say was no. <laughs> but it was traumatic at the time. And I thought, she's irreplaceable. No, I don't want to. And I never did get another hamster. I'm like, that was an emotional ride for me. No, I get it. I get it. I felt that way about my goldfish. <laughs> He ate all the other goldfish. We bought him oh. as companions because we felt sorry for him. He ate them all, and then uh, and then he died, and it wasn't the same. I thought he was. I didn't know kind. goldfish were cannibals. I didn't either. It was terrifying. I don't what know kind what of it was. Maybe was it wasn't it? a goldfish. Was a go- <laughs> I know. What did they cross it with? What kind of water was it bred in? I won it old fashioned style in a fun fair. It came in a little plastic bag with some water. <laughs> That is wild. What kind of goldfish? I don't know if you've ever told me that story. You know, someone told me a similar story about a hamster. It was my friend's friend's hamster. And she did the same thing you did. She 
bought another hamster so it could be friends even though i don't think hamsters are supposed to be coupled like that from my understanding i remember being a kid and that's why i didn't get a second one when she was still alive because i'm like oh yeah i think you can just have one they're territorial like that and when she woke up one day the, one of the hamsters was standing in the carcass of the other one <laughs> And then she was scared of the hamster and was throwing food in its cage instead of feeding it. I'm like, well, it ate the hamster. It never bit her. So what's she scared about? Weirdo. On that note, last few words about little flies everywhere. Yes. On the whole, I didn't appreciate how they presented race, but I do think it raised some very important questions. Like I said, about the white family as an institution and motherhood and it drew i do think to self-absorbed mothers and the face you know the stories they told themselves and what we see was the reality playing out when they were faced with challenges to what they wanted or any obstacle to what they thought was right and fair in the world so i did enjoy it and i would recommend people watch it yeah i did too Right, that's all for us. Thank you very much for listening. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at MyDialorama or on Facebook. You can message us, tweet us comments and feedback and uh, let us know if you've got any requests. See you next time.